Hi there, thanks for joining us. You're listening to the podcast that for the last few days has been number one in the charts here in the United Kingdom, the most listened to podcast in the country. For that, we say thank you so much. Thank you for being part of High Performance, which is quite simply our gift to you for free every single week. This is the podcast that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performance into your life lessons. So once again, as we enter a new year, vow to allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs to become your teachers. Today, we have a Premier League footballer with a totally unique story, a unique take on life, and he's chosen this podcast to share how he really feels. Here's what's in store. It's something that Pochettino, you know, he, he preached at Tottenham when, when he was there about in training, he used to try and make it as uncomfortable as possible for us because then it was all about in the game, it would feel so much easier because, you know, you've gone through all, all this stuff, all these situations where it's made it almost impossible for you. So then in a game, everything is, is easier. The football was so different. The intensity was so different. And it was, it was really like, you know, a kick up the backside for me, really. And... Uh, I really say to everyone, I, I went there a boy and I really I came back a man and that, that's really what happened, yeah. So Musa Dembele and Jan Vertonghen, who were at Tottenham and older than me, and I recognise that those are the kind of guys I want to be with, that, that I like the way they, they lead their lives outside of football. I can't say sorry for it and I can't... I'll do it again tomorrow because my brother was there and, and uh, my brother wasn't in any kind of danger, you know, but... He was there, you know, so, um, yeah, I, it, 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 I could be in a football stadium or I could be in the street or I could be anywhere and my brother could do something and he could be in the wrong, <laughs> but I'd still go. Oh, wow, we're going to cover so much over the next hour. The kind of conversation that you simply don't hear with top flight footballers very often. We're going to talk about upbringing. We're going to talk about failure. We're going to talk about resilience. We're going to talk about mistakes and struggles. Um, and Eric said to us that no topic was off limits. This wasn't one of those interviews with a professional sports person where an agent is sitting two feet away telling you what you can and can't talk about. Um, and it was a really interesting conversation, particularly for me coming from you know the background as, as a sports presenter. I love these conversations. I want you to see Eric Dyer after this in a way that you normally wouldn't. I want you to see the human side. I want you to see the struggles and the sacrifice, but also understand why he has been as successful as he has. And what a great time to be having this conversation with Eric playing regularly under Antonio Conte at Tottenham. Tottenham winning games and surging towards a top four finish and potential Champions League football again next year. Um, a great player, a great guy, and it's a great conversation. So sit back and enjoy today's podcast. And before we get going, just a quick reminder that to get deeper into the world of high performance, whether it's our book or our tour or our members club, just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com. It's all there for you. And today's episode, the very first episode of 2022, comes next. Before we start a brand new year of the High Performance Podcast, I'm really pleased to say that Lotus Cars, our founding partner, will remain with us throughout 2022. And I just want to start, actually, the new year by um, paying respect to the family of Hazel Chapman. Hazel was the wife of Colin Chapman, the founder of Lotus Cars. She passed away towards the end of 2021 at the age of 94. And she existed in a period where 
women were in the background. Women weren't heard of, particularly in motor racing circles, yet she was different, man. She was a real, true inspiration. She broke ground for women. She broke down doors that women are walking through in motorsport today. She was central to the success of Lotus. In fact, if you speak to anyone at Lotus Cars, she will tell you that Lotus wouldn't exist without Hazel Chapman. So all of us at the High Performance Podcast send our love and very best wishes to the family of Hazel Chapman, who passed away aged 94, a true inspiration and a true leader for women everywhere. If you want to find out more, just check out lotuscars.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So today we're joined by a footballer whose career, I think, has been defined by bravery. The bravery to be playing football hundreds of miles from his parents as a youngster. The bravery to extend his contract to Everton as a young player, despite the fact he wasn't very happy. The bravery to step up and take a vital penalty for England in a competition. And now brave enough to come and share his learnings with us on the High Performance (laughs) Podcast. That's the bravest part of all. Um, But we're talking about not just learnings from football, but learnings from life. That's what we're really here to talk about. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome the Tottenham and England player, Eric Dyer, to High Performance. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So you've listened to a few of these. Yes. So you know how we start. Yep. What is, in your mind, High Performance? (laughs) Well, I listened to Dan Carter yesterday, and I don't really know how to follow that. (laughs) I was thinking about this like last night and this morning and how I'd answer that question because for me like I don't feel like I've I've nailed it yet you know like I feel like there's still quite a quite a way to go for me but the two things that I think um for me would stand out the, the first one is consistency to be able to perform at a high level consistently I think is something that is the hardest thing to achieve and I think if you look at the best in in my field and and others you know to be able to perform consistently at a high level over many years is is something that after being in in professional football for almost 10 years now 
like I look I look at that and just think, wow, you know, like to be, to have that consistency of performance and uh, output is incredible. And then I think performing under pressure in that environment to be able to take your chance I think when you get it I think that's that's a huge thing that comes with a little bit of luck getting that chance that first chance I think you always need that little bit of luck but then being able to take it in that moment and then doing it over and over again in the pressurized situations I think would be the two things for me yeah it's a great answer to the opening question but what's interesting is you felt the need to preface it by saying well I don't really feel I'm at a high performance level like if you could go back to a seven or eight year old Eric and say you're going to play in a Champions League final, you're going to play for a decade in the Premier League, one of the biggest clubs in the country, represent England at major tournaments, score a penalty when it really mattered for the country, (laughs) all of those things. I think the seven or eight-year-old you would have said, yeah, of course you know what high performance is. Yeah. So let's flip it on the head then. And when I ask that question and you say, I don't really think I'm there yet, what about you is not there yet? What's your sort of biggest area that you still feel you're learning and growing in? Um... Well, I think that's just part of my nature and I think many people around me, our nature is always that we want to, we want more and we always want to do better and we sort of never sit back. I, I, ne- I never really sit back and think like, oh, well done for the other day. <laughs> I'm just constantly looking looking forward and there's definitely been uh, periods of time and even even I think a few seasons that I can name where I feel like I was really performing at a high level consistently for the whole season but that consistency to improve and and to perform at a high level is is really what I'm striving for yeah so when Covid came along then and you had the chance to reflect on your career for the first time Mm. what kind of conclusions did you reach I don't think it was so much about reflecting oh my career but I feel like Covid Dave Chappelle said this and I I really like I'm stealing his thing I don't want to say it was me that said it but um (laughs) You had to like sit down with your decisions. You had to sit down with whatever that might be in in your job, in your personal life, uh, who your friends are, who your friends aren't. Um, You had to kind of sit down with those decisions. And in the day to day, we're moving so fast and everything's happening that you can be in a bad relationship or you can uh, be doing something at work. But you're sort of just like the cracks are covered over by other things you're doing and constantly moving. Whereas you had to sort of sit with them for a long period of time so I think it gave me the time just to reflect on those decisions and am I happy with this am I happy doing this um am I happy living in this way you know and I came out of Covid like I think changing quite a few things just because it gave you that time to sit and and reflect on them. What did you change? I feel like I really simplified my life uh, out of COVID and, and obviously a few of those things start creeping back in now that we've been out of it for a little bit. I remember the feeling I had coming back to play football again and going to training and um, I'm just trying to maintain that feeling because I felt like a I felt like a kid playing football again because we'd it had been taken away from you for so long and I just really like try to keep hold of that enthusiasm and that freedom I felt when I was playing in that time. Yeah. It's one of the challenges with being a professional footballer, maintaining that individuality. And I'm talking about even to the point of coming and have a conversation like us on here. Yeah. You know, it's a pack mentality because you're in a team. So mm. everyone does the same as everyone else and they get yeah. the same wash bags and cars yeah, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> nightclubs and tattoos and they talk the same. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, did you have to learn to be a bit braver then, do you think? Well, I always credit like two guys for me when I was coming up at Tottenham 
my parents from a young age and me I've got a big fam lots of brothers and sisters for, we're all very uh strong-minded so we I I never did and my brothers and sisters neither we never really went with the crowd or my parents were quite really strong on that they never did and that sort of came off on us as well so Musa Dembele and Jan Vertonghen who were at Tottenham and older than me and I recognize that those are the kind of guys I want to be with that that I like the way they, they lead their lives outside of football. They really had that where nothing really affected them, nothing affected them, what other people were doing or other people were living their lives. They were extreme, extremely humble. Um, I think Musa Nembele is the best footballer I've ever played with. And, and yeah, and they, they were like two older brothers to me. They really look, looked after me and, and uh, I took a lot of advice for them really just outside of football and the, and the way I wanted to live my life and, and what I wanted to do with, with my time, with my money, uh, etc. So um, they were two people that I really looked up to and, and became very close to and, and, and helped me massively not go down that avenue that you were talking about, yeah. I think what's interesting, Damien, is that there'll be a lot of players that have played with both of those footballers, but they won't talk like Eric does about it. And I think sometimes it's easy to give credit to the person that you believe impacted you. But actually, quite often, we have to remember the credit belongs to the person that's impacted because they had that open-minded approach to allow themselves to be changed. Absolutely, yeah. The fact, and, and that was a question I was interested in. Did they seek you out or did you seek out their influence? No, I think... I think um, well, I, I got on with them, I think, from, from the start. Like, we got on very well, you know. So there was obviously that side of things and our relationship sort of was built on that. And then uh, I definitely recognised that those were those were the kind of people that I wanted to be around, you know, that that were in that kind of way with the way in which they lived their life. I definitely recognise that that was what I wanted to to be around, and that's not to say that there are other guys in that team as well, because I feel like we, have, we I was extremely lucky, and we were extremely lucky in that time to have such a great dressing room. Would you tell us a little bit about your parents? Because I know you won a five, but yeah. your background in terms of the decisions they were making had an impact on you and. Your siblings? Mm. Well, they uh, both of them very hardworking, very like strong-willed. Um, you know, they were brave in their decisions. I think they, you know, we moved to Portugal when I was I was seven, and uh, it was really like uh, off the cuff. And know, how was that announced to it? <laughs> I can't remember. I was six. I was six. I have no. I have no idea how it happened. We went on holiday to Portugal first, and then. Almost instantly, my parents were just like, you know, this is uh, this is where where we should be. You know, for I think we were all well, we were six kids, so it was <laughs> so you, as you can imagine, it was a bit of a, a war zone in the house. Um, so to be somewhere where you could be outside a lot more, you, there was you, you, we had more freedom as a kid than if, if I was to compare it to now and looking at. Um, well, I live in London, and and a way a kid grows up in London, you know, from a young age, I could go to school by myself, I could, um, you know, be with my friends by myself, you know, so we built that independence and, and yeah, making that decision to go to Portugal was, you know, probably, they'd probably say the best decision they ever made, yeah. And now that as an adult, you, you, like, you're able to ask them that, was that part of the reason they wanted to do it, to give the, you and your brothers and sisters that independence? Not so much the, yeah, the independence, the lifestyle, um, I think they just felt, as as we were a big family, that the lifestyle um, would be very different. You know, 
I'm not going to lie, at the time, one pound was two euros, so there was that. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that too. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a mixture of, of factors and one of the, the things I feel luckiest about with my parents was they were never really some people that would just like go with the flow and, you know, if, if every kid at school had a phone, they wouldn't give you one, you know. It was really, they were very independent in the way they thought about those things. So that I was, we were extremely lucky with, yeah. And then they came back to the UK, right? They came back to the UK. And you stayed out there? Yeah. How old were you then? 15, 16, maybe 15. So it would have been yeah. probably the easier decision to come back with them. So how did you come to the decision that you were going to stay out there on your own? Because that feels like a brave call, even at 15. Yeah, I'd, I, when I was 13, I moved, I moved full-time. I lived at, the, lived at Sporting's Academy because we lived about an hour away or so. And the Sporting wanted me to and... I wanted to and my parents let me, you know, and my parents decided to move back to England for my for, for my brothers and sisters. They were starting to go to university and they were getting a bit older, so they wanted them uh, to go to go to school and, and then obviously they could move on with whatever they were doing and their work as well. So, so yeah, the decision, I was really happy. I, I, I was so happy at Sporting Lisbon, you know, that I've been there since I was eight. Um, for me, it's like, you know, it's my home. That, that club is like my club. You know, like the only club I really have. That I was there from eight to twenty. So it's uh, yeah. it's it's my family really. It's a big shout though at thirteen to leave the family home, isn't it, and move into the move in full time to the academy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, obviously at that at that age, you have no idea what's going to happen. But um, what do you think that did for you? There was positives and negatives to it. I think you know. I went to Portuguese school. That, that's when I started going to Portuguese, like full-time Portuguese school. So I was living full-time with like 60 boys, I think, in, in the academy um, from 13 to like 18. So at that time, at going in at that age, like it's uh, it's an experience. It was it was an experience. Um, you know, as the young ones, we, we get we get we were given a hard time at the okay. beginning, and then being the English kid, you know, I was I was uh, the only English kid there, so that was a. Uh, that was an experience in itself. But then you ended up being the captain of the of the sporting teams for your age range. Yeah. So what was it that they spotted in you, do you think, that gave you that extra responsibility? Yeah, I was very driven when I was young. You know, I was ex- extremely driven. When I moved to the academy, I think it really streamlined my focus, you know, because it was go to school and training, go to school training, and you're, and you're just constantly in that environment where everyone is trying to reach the same goal so it really streamlined your focus and I was that's all I was interested in was was making it and just that focus and um, I think that's what that was probably the things that stood out to them probably was was you know my work ethic and and yeah. But we have lots of young people listening to this Eric that maybe would find themselves in an environment like that where it would be easy to go with the 59 other kids and take on board some of those distractions so what did you learn that gave in terms of that focus that allowed you to to maintain it it's one of the biggest things in problems in football probably for for me is like what happens to everyone else and how everyone else all those ones that don't make it where they go from there you know and looking after that pathway but I think well I, I wasn't one in 59 there were there were you know, I think the ones that were focused there was more than the ones that <laughs> were maybe being distracted. So it was a, it was an incredible environment in that way, extremely competitive one because in Portugal you only had Benfica, Porto, and Sporting, and and everyone would be going, every good player would be going to those three teams. So it wasn't like here in England where 
it's a lot more spread out and I think they have things in, in place to try and stop that as well. So it was an extremely competitive environment, you know, a lot of uh, very good young players. So everyone was kind of, you know, driven and fighting and, and uh, they had an incredible discipline installed in, 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 in the academy that was something that, you know, was fantastic for, for So would us. you say more about that? What, what kind of discipline? Yeah, they, they had lo loads of things that... I grew up in a very disciplined household, you know, it was the only way with six kids. So, so um, it was it was quite good going into that. But there was a huge, huge emphasis on, on, on respect. I think it's a cultural thing as well. So there'd be rules like you had to keep your bedroom tidy, you had to make your bed every morning. If you didn't, you wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed out at the weekends. You'd have, you'd have to stay stay at the academy. They had a guy um, called Sir Paulo who was in charge of the, bo the boys and he was this big, used to be in the army, this big tough guy. <laughs> and he was pretty scary, so no one, wanted to, no one wanted to go on the wrong side of him. And then, yeah, it was all about respect, saying good morning to everyone in the morning. You had to be good at school, you know, you had to behave at school, you had to perform at school. That was really important for them. So they, they really focused on so much more than, than the football side of things, which I think, you know, was, was so important and um, something that, yeah, I think everyone there benefited from. And do you still carry those values today? Yeah, massive. Making a bed is a huge thing of mine. Is it? <laughs> it's a huge thing of mine because of that. I, I, like, I'll go to a hotel and make my bed in the morning, <laughs> just because it's just like I don't know. I feel like it's you know I have to start my day in that way. There's um, something important about that though. We had a, a we have a, a members club called the High Performance Circle, and we had um, an American military general talk to us on there, and he's written a whole book about making your bed, starting yeah. your day right. Yeah, and I think sometimes people listen to this kind of a conversation with a you know a Premier League footballer and they think the things that you do to get yourself to the elite level are a million miles away from where they are yeah. but they're not are they no not Ian McGee and Serena McGee came on and talked about world class basics mm. and that kind of is what you're talking about right 100% I think there are tons of things that I think can relate to to anything anything you do I live with both my brothers and and you know they're on their journeys and they're extremely focused and motivated and very hard working and all three of us do a lot of the similar things because that's what um you know makes us feel feel good i think and and feel in the best possible place to to do our jobs so i think uh, a lot of things are transferable depending on what you do yeah so you come back to england in the end yeah you go to everton yeah um I'm interested, A, in how much of a culture shock that was, <laughs> and B, I know you're unhappy there, but then extended your contract. Yeah. Those two things I found fascinating. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I really wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs> but it was probably the best thing I ever did, and it was something... Um, so how old were you, Eric? For I was 16 or 17. I'm, ter I'm terrible with these yeah. things. But so basically... It was a, the problem was at Sporting. It was a bit of a mess at that time, um, and I had always played up an age group. And then you get to they have under 18s and the 19s become one age group. So I was under 16 playing with the under 17s. Then the under 17s became under 18s, but they're competing with the under 19s to play. So they kept me with the under 17s, which was my age group. So I was sort of just stagnant and really not going anywhere and and uh at, yeah at the time my, my dad said to me like you need to get go into a different environment because otherwise you're just standing still really so um 
yeah, I spoke to a few English clubs at the time and, and Everton because it was a strange deal where I was only on a loan. So there was all the risk on their side. And, and to be fair to them, they were amazing with me and, and um, you know, took that risk. And, and David Moyes was the manager at the time. So I went there for six months, really off, off the back of my dad really telling me, you know, you need to get out of here. And, I, and it was it was the best thing I ever did at that age, you know, and who would, I don't really know what would have happened to me if I had stayed because I wasn't in a good place. And it was just the biggest cultural shock for me. Um, you know, I was I was very much Portuguese at the time, you know, like in every way, you know, my mum was more worried about me forgetting my English <laughs> because, you know, my whole life was in Portuguese school, go to leave school everything everything the only time i spoke english was with my my parents or my my brothers and sisters so um, all my friends portuguese so in that way it was just a huge shock in every way the way they trained the way the building was the the city the weather just you know leaving what was the single hardest thing to deal with for you <sighs> the single hardest thing I, i'm not someone that likes being by myself ever and just being by myself in in a in a country i didn't I didn't know anyone in a city. I didn't know anyone, um, and then I think the second hardest was just just the football was so different, the intensity was so different, and it was it was really like you know a kick up the backside for me really. And uh, I really say to everyone, I, I went there a boy, and I really I came back a man, and that that's really what happened. Yeah, which is a really interesting sort of insight. But what I'd like to explore, Eric, is that there'll be lots of people listening to this that have those moments like that in the face where you've been hit with the culture shock and the intensity yeah. of it. What did you do to knuckle down and overcome them? Um, I've experienced it before because when I went to Portugal, I experienced that same thing. You know, when I was little, my mum loves telling me this story. She, uh, I was playing, uh, we, were, we were in the Algarve and I was playing for a team called Lags, a sm small team. It's where I first started playing and it was a gravel, gravel pitch. And I was terrified, you know, I really did. I couldn't speak a word of Portuguese. And my mum literally, the first few times, would throw me over this this fence, you know. <laughs> I'd be like, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. Probably crying. And she'd just throw me over the fence and say, like, you know, off you go. <laughs> You're not coming home. So um, I've been in that environment before. So it was all about just trying to embrace it, you know, trying to em embrace the culture, embrace embrace the club, um, embrace the city and I tried to do all those things and um, you know it's fantastic I have, I, have, I have friends you know Ross Barkley was there at the time so I, I built friendships from it that I keep to this day Chris Long plays in, plays in Scotland now um, and then people had a huge impact on me Alan Irvine um, who, who was with David Moyes at West Ham uh, last season had a, a huge impact on me David Moyes was, was incredible with me at the time and after the second year you know, he he had asked me if I wanted to stay stay on from there, and you know, even when I see him, you know, it's always nice when I see him, and he's always been so great for me. So, um, but you weren't happy, so why did you stay? My dad again, <laughs> he he was the one that sort of for, forced it upon me, you know, and and um, I just started playing for England's youth teams as well, and there there was a great setup there at Everton. In you know, I was with I was with the reserves and and. Uh, you know, I trained sometimes with the first team, but very, very much just with the reserves. And, and um, there was a, a lot of really good players, John Lundstrom, Ross Barkley, Shane Duffy, um, Mustafi who was at Arsenal. Um, so there was there was a lot of good players there. Alan Irvine was there, who was, you know, I thought was a, a fantastic coach um, and, you know, so good at developing. 
players. Um, so yeah, it was a great club, great setup, and yeah, I was sort of playing at a level where if I went back to Portugal, that didn't really exist at the time because they didn't have a, a B team or a reserve team at the time. Ne the year afterwards, that's when B teams came back in Portugal. So I was playing for a reserve team, which was a lot more already like a manly football. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it ended up being yeah great for me. So had you got to a point here where, thanks to your parents, you'd got comfortable with being uncomfortable? Because right from your mum, well, from your parents taking you out of the UK, then yeah. your mum chucking you over a fence and making you play <laughs> football. And then you making the decision yourself to leave home and you talked about strict parenting and a pretty strict academy by, by the sounds of things. Yeah. And then your dad basically saying to you, you're now too comfortable at sporting, you need a new challenge. Yeah. This is all resilience building, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think like comfort is the enemy, you know, is the ultimate enemy. So um, I always think I strive in an uncomfortable environment. You know, I think when I get chucked into that moment, in that moment, I always feel like, you know, I'll swim. <laughs> I think that just comes naturally from my upbringing, you know, moving to Portugal and 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 uh, we we moved quite a bit in Portugal as well. Moved moved around and moved school a bit. So like I was always having to adapt to to my surroundings and 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 culturally as well. So um so I feel like m my whole childhood I was sort of doing that. So it comes naturally to me, yeah. So what would you say is the best tip then Eric for anyone that wants to get out of that comfort zone and embrace that those moments of discomfort from your own experience. Well, it's exactly that. It's embracing it, you know. I think that's the key thing. I see it when players come from abroad to the Premier League now, and it happened to me when, when I came to Tottenham again, you know, because I'd gone back to Portugal and I came to Tottenham. I think the most important, I think that's the most important thing is to, to embrace it, you know, to, to have an open mind to it, to be open to those uncomfortable situations and get through them, you know, and they won't be, they sometimes they're not enjoyable, but you'll feel so much better for it the other side. So um, it's something that Pochettino, you know, he, he preached at Tottenham when, when he was there about in training, he used to try and make it as uncomfortable as possible for us because then it was all about in the game, it would feel so much easier because you know, you've gone through all, all this stuff, all these situations where it's made it almost impossible for you. So then in a game, everything is, is easier. We have a lot of teachers listening to this podcast, a lot of CEOs, a lot of parents, and they're all doing the same thing, really. They're trying to get a group of people to buy into their beliefs and their methods. Mm. I'm fascinated to know, from a player's point of view, and you know, as you know, Maurizio has been on the podcast, yeah. what, from a player's perspective, did he do to get you to all buy into his methods and his approach to football? Well, you didn't have a choice. <laughs> you didn't have a choice, you had to. Um, I think that's a really important... Uh, side of things you know and 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 now i'm experiencing it you know with, with conte as well is, is like it is my way you know and that that's very much i think uh their style you know is like they believe 100 percent in in what they do and a kid's not stupid no one's stupid you you feel that you know you feel when someone when when someone has that belief in in what they're doing that rubs off on you and and, and you believe it too you know and I think that was, you know, with Maurizio, that was uh, one of his best qualities. Was he was he was so consistent in, no matter the the high or the low, the consistency in in him and his coaching staff's behaviour and the way that we worked every single day. You know, if we won or lost, nothing changed. It was that consistency in the way we trained and the way everyone behaved was so important. You know, and and um, 
so it's that yeah for me it was that word again that consistency and we were all so young at the time you know me Harry Dudley Christian uh, Ben Davies um, obviously Jan Musa but there was a lot of young players there and he would just work us and work us and work us you know and, and just trying to take every little bit of ounce of potential that we had and and try and squeeze it all out of us you know and it was uh yeah it was the best environment for a young player so when we met him he he, he spoke about a concept that really intrigued us about universal energy how did you interpret that what did you understand by that the best way i could explain it like on a football pitch is there are moments that you you have games and as players as individuals you have moments where he'd always say to me eric don't think just do it you know just don't think and it's about being in that 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 flow state you know where everything it's not it's never reactive it's just you're just proactive and and everything is just flowing and you can build that within a team where there's that energy where it's just natural it's just one step after the other and and you don't even have to think about it you don't have to think where to be it's just happening and i think <clears throat> he would create that in so many little things like your body shape or the way you moved in a certain moment you, you you'd repeat the drill over and over and over again and in the game it would just it was just natural you know even in all the gym work we did all the gym work was relative to what we were doing, the movements you'd make on a pitch. So it was always just built, everything was just built in for that energy to exist where everything was flowing as one. And can you get yourself into a state of flow for a game of football? Yeah, I think so, 100%. And how do you do that? <laughs> I don't know, because it doesn't happen always, you know. Um, f for me, it's very emotional. I feel like the more the more emotional the game is or, or something, I, I find myself in it more, you know, or if something angers me or there, there's that, there can be one thing that will just anger me and put me put me in it. So I you think. like that, if early in a game someone sticks their elbow in your ribs or yeah. is aggressive towards you, that's a good thing, is it for you? Yeah, that, that's a good thing for me, yeah, for sure. Like, I, I, I just like that. I like being in an environment where there's like an energy between everyone. That every, you really feel that everyone is working towards the same thing where everyone is um, focused on the same goal and to be around it to be in that kind of environment you know and, and to be working for in my case you know working for a manager in which I believe in and I trust and and I you know have that confidence in makes a huge difference to me well you know the documentary um what was it called the documentary they filmed behind this all, all, all or nothing. nothing yeah yeah you know and you I think it was you. You all came in the dressing room and someone was being critical. And was it you that was? you said, name names? Name names? <laughs> yeah, was yeah, that you? Yeah. yeah, that was me, yeah. And is that because you, th you thought they were aiming that at you and you wanted them to front up and be totally honest? Or, or did no, you I think it was better for the group to just... I just think if you've got criticism, tell people. Yeah, I just don't like it if like, you're just going to be... Um, like vague and... Vague about it, you know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really a, a, a screamer at all, you know. I'm not a very, like, confrontational person, but... You know, I, I just want people to be up front and if you have something to say to someone, you know, say it, you know, don't yeah. don't be vague about it. And that's it. how you deal with things? Up yeah, front, that's how total I honesty? That's how I try to, you know, I don't think I'm perfect, but um, I'm definitely not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I try to be, yeah. I remember yeah. Frank Lampard, he came on the podcast, didn't he? And he said, communication is so important because if you don't tell the players exactly your plan and what you're thinking, they just fill in the blanks. Yeah, and then yeah, they fill yeah. them in wrong, and then yeah, it yeah. creates toxicity. Yeah, one hundred percent. You, you, for me as a player, I want to have complete clarity, and you know what is my job, what is the team's style, or 
how does the team work? How, what do we do? You know, I think when you have clarity in all of those things, or as you know, as a player, everything becomes so much easier. You know, you can if it's very clear what the manager wants, then you can start talking to other players and saying like, no, that's wrong because we both know it's wrong because he said it. You know, and if it's not said, then it's a debate because you, you don't you don't know who's right, what's wrong, what's right. So I think the manager being uh, very clear in what he wants and his ideas and how he wants you to play, I think gives everyone clarity and makes it easier to confront people about situations. So to go back to that theme of universal energy and the idea of people being in flow, how would you as an individual tackle somebody that's bringing a negative energy into a group then? I think like the more you have doing things the right way and bringing that right energy, it becomes very difficult for for one person or two people to affect it, yeah. I think. I don't think they have a choice but to be to be a part of it, really. So I think it's it's about building that solid foundations within the group and having a real core to the group. And then I think the ones on the outside don't really, don't really have a choice but to buy into it and be a part of it. So when you started then, you, you by definition you'd have been on the outside of that group and had to make your way to the core yeah obviously when I arrived at Tottenham I was just a you know 20 year old boy so (laughs) I didn't really know what I was getting into in every environment I'm a strong believer that you need like that leader figure who who everyone sort of uh feeds to and that there is as I said no you know with with Maurizio and, and and the manager now just you know, I, I enjoy being in that environment where it's like it's their way or the highway, you know, and there's no room for discussion. And I, I, I think that's the best environment to, to be to be successful as a team, you know, because otherwise it's not for me as a player to say how we should be doing things, how we should be playing. That That's the manager's job. And, and uh, the better he does it, the, the easier it is for, for everyone as players. A key element, of course, is adapting, isn't it, as a footballer? Yeah. So let's talk about when a manager leaves and a new manager arrives. So Maurizio Pochettino leaves Spurs. How do you all find out about that sort of thing? Well, we found out um, through the club. The club told us, you know, before before it became public. And um, Did you get a farewell or anything with... I, I saw him, yeah, I, I saw him. I went to his house and saw him, uh, you know, had a, had a, had a you know probably like three, four hours of him, which was really nice. And, you know, just disappointing that things ended in that way at that time. But, uh, yeah, that, that is football, yeah. And what's the one, the one thing you carry from that period in your career playing under him? What was that, as you had that three or four hours in his company and you left, what was the thing you thought, you know what, this guy gave me this and I'm never going to let it go? Um, well, he gave, he gave me my, my chance in the Premier League, you know. When I, when I arrived at, at Tottenham, I, I, as I said, I was 20 and... I had no idea like what situation I was going to come into really from an individual point of view and I was there for two weeks and he played me, uh, played, I played my debut against West Ham away and, and yeah and I'd been there two weeks which I, 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 I didn't know how many games I was going to play in the first season, I didn't know like I knew they wanted a young centre back and that's, that was the place I was there to fill you know. So, yeah, he, he installed all his faith in me and I think he did that over and over again with, with, with players you know where he didn't think at all about the. It was like if you were if you were ready, you were ready, you know. And it didn't matter the occasion. As I said, you know, West Ham away. It was just you know off you go. <laughs> and uh, he was he was great like that. Yeah. So then in comes Jose Mourinho. Yeah. As players, how much sort of 
knowledge do you have of who's coming in or do you find out the no, same we just, time as we, the rest of us? None, yeah. We, we uh, just found out again through the club. The club tell us before it becomes public and that's it really. So Jose comes in, new era. Yeah. What does he do to set the tone with the players? How did he instil a new culture at that football club on day one? He came in with a real energy. Um, I think he was really excited to be working again. I think he hadn't been working for a little while, so I think he was really excited to be working again. And and um, yeah, he came in with a, you know a fantastic energy and was trying to just boost. I think the confidence of of all the players. Um, obviously, having gone through the period that we had at the time, um, and obviously it's, it's Mourinho, you know. So he comes with uh, he comes with a lot of charisma. Yeah. Everyone starts from zero and it's that thing about, you know, trying to find your feet uh, under a new manager. So as a kid that grew up in Portugal when he first came to prominence at Porto before going on to yeah, Chelsea, yeah, yeah. like that must have been quite exciting for yeah, you. Yeah, that too. was very, very, obviously for me it was exciting in that sense, you know, because um, growing up there's like, there's two people really in Portugal, you know, that um, are like, like God-like figures, you know, so... Um, Obviously, he's he's one of them, you know, and uh, you never imagine that time's going to work like that, you know, like playing with Rooney for England and I was at Euro 2004 in Portugal and, you know, I, I won this, my sister won a competition with school and she got to go, we got to go and watch England train, you know, and right. Rooney's there playing, you know, I got a picture of him afterwards, and I, was, I don't know how old I was, I was really, <laughs> really young and you never imagine that time's going to work like that, that, you know, I got the chance to play with him and then, when I was a kid, Mourinho's manager, you never think time works where yeah. I'm going to end up so <laughs> being managed by him. So how do you make that mental adjustment then of being like the, you know, the kid having your photo with Rooney to then being a pair and telling him to run a bit harder or <laughs> asking him to pass you the ball? I never told him that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I never told him to pass the ball either. <laughs> it was a lot better with him. Um, you just Do you t- think about them or not? Do you, are you, you mm, accept no, you just your life's... Yeah, you just sort of, uh, it, it just is what it is in the moment. Like you, you, you sort of, you start to build it up. You start to, you know, I went to Tottenham and then I was playing with players that, you know, I was like, oh, wow. And then, and then you're playing against players and you sort of just, that sort of just builds up and up and up. Just the way he was as well with like us young, there was a lot of young players at the time and the way he treated us, you know, he'd sit next to you on the bus or he'd come and sit with you at dinner and, and, um, really like looked after you and and that was uh that was something i never forget yeah so have you built processes or ways of coping when when the pressure is great i mean a really good example would be taking the penalty for england and you yeah. know none of us need reminding of our history with penalties <laughs> you stand in there you put the ball down on the spot yeah do you think about the country the people watching the history with penalties the fact that it's all on you that everyone's holding their breath, <laughs> that this goal puts us into the next round. Like, what can you take us through the, the yeah. mental story when you knew you were taking that kick? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because Portugal knocked England out of penalties twice, you know, and I used to get <laughs> so much um, stick about it, about it, you know, at the academy. But I felt Portuguese in that way, you know, where like I felt like. I have the Portuguese thing about taking penalties, you know, like I grew up about it. I grew up with it at, at yeah. sporting, you know. As in the confidence thing. Like, the confidence yeah. thing, yeah. Like I feel like I had their confidence, to, like their confidence to take a penalty or, or do one of those things, you know, because I was one of them in, in that scenario where we'd 
you know, we'd practice penalties loads and, and all that kind of stuff. And I was around them doing it. So so there was that kind of aspect to it. And then I didn't feel attached to, to England's penalty losses in the past. You didn't feel the weight of that baggage or anything? No, obviously there was a lot of pressure in that moment. But um, for me, the biggest thing is practice. And leading up to the World Cup, we practiced them loads. And I'd always, I was always practicing them all the time. And... and uh, Popey at Burnley, he was he was the keeper, you know, and uh, he's someone that like would never get any credit, you know, but he would like stay out there and say penalty after penalty, and I was always practicing to my bottom left, and he knew, you know, he knew I was always going there, so it was like this challenge to try and score, because it beca- you had to hit like a great penalty, which I really didn't do in the, in the penalty shootout, <laughs> but you had to hit like a great one to score because uh, he knew it was going there as well, practicing, and then. And then when it came to the penalty, I actually, I was terrified when I was standing there waiting because I knew it was coming to me. I was absolutely terrified. So what did you do to manage that then? That, those, that Nothing. It completely overtook me. I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking two things happened. Um, they missed before me and it became the penalty to win instead of the penalty to to stay in. And were you all right with that or do you think oh, oh no. that felt so much better because if if I if I missed we we kept on going with the penalties and and then you know I spoke about this with, with Harry as well because I think you know well, he can stay better than me but I think he experienced something similar where when I got there to take it I was I was actually just really really calm and and like uh, yeah I was convinced I was going to score you know I could have missed because it was actually a bad penalty but I was really calm in that moment and um, yeah I I, I just it was just like okay so you've gone from being terrified to then stepping up and putting the ball down and being calm yeah what changed in apart from like you now playing just that practice and routine like once I just got into that I just got into like the routine of what I had to take a penalty you know like I just put it down to like the steps I wanted back and and I was just in that moment and and it was to win it so So was was it Pochettino's advice of don't think just do in that moment and yeah but I think with enough practice that just exists you know where where you're not thinking if 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 you do something over and over and over again it just becomes um it becomes second nature to you. When I stood up to take it, the fact that it was to win it instead of thing did change everything for me in that moment. And, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, it's great, great, (laughs) great, great opportunity. You know, it was a great moment for us in in that that tournament. And, uh, you know, it was probably like that thing that really... uh, everyone was kind of fearful of and to go get through it was amazing. Isn't it interesting though, like, I don't want to get too spiritual, but when you talk about Maurizio and this universal energy, like you're standing on that football field in your 20s and the very thing you're being asked to do was the thing that was instilled in you when you were seven or eight years old in a foreign country, almost as a totally different person all those years (laughs) ago. And the universe has this amazing way sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, just giving yeah. us things yeah. to deal with and we, we have the tools in our in our bag. Yeah, things happen and, and uh, I feel like you can relate them to so many things that have happened to you in the past and there are moments, that, you know, they're just surreal moments and there are those moments where I, I always believe that you, you do need that little bit of luck but then there's no luck in then taking it when you get that chance or you get the opportunity and whatever it is and preparing yourself for that mm. moment even though you don't know when it's going to come but staying uh, on top of it and and keep going keep going keep going waiting for that moment yeah that's very similar to we interviewed uh Sio Khaleesi the Springboks 
uh, rugby union yeah. captain who spoke about that, that a lot of people moan and moan but then they're not ready when opportunity yeah, yeah lands yeah. in their lap yeah 100 percent. you've always got to be ready because you just never know when it's going to happen i made my debut for sporting because two right backs got injured and then I, I played it right back you know and i made my debut and then i took it and i stayed in the first team from then on and i think it is really hard to keep going when you don't know the timeline and you don't know when it's going to come it, it, i think it's difficult to that's where consistency is but yeah again, that's where, exactly yeah just the consistency in your behaviors that's the most important thing is to no matter how old i am i want to i want to just keep trying to get better and better and and um in, in whatever it is that i'm doing whatever it might be just try to get better and better yeah hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So can we take you forward then from that World Cup to the European Championships? Because... We were reading that Gareth Southgate had said it was one of the most difficult conversations he'd had to have with you yeah. to say that you weren't going to be selected in that yeah, final yeah. squad. Yeah. But equally, he also said that your response was incredibly mature and you had a long conversation around it. But I'm interested in how you interpreted that conversation and what you chose to do differently on the back of that. Yeah, for me, that was probably the worst moment like, of my career, probably not going to the Euros, I think. I didn't expect it and, and um, yeah, it was difficult for me, you know, it was, it was very difficult to deal with that. But I believe everything happens for a reason and, and um, it wasn't to be. And, and uh, I've always had a great relationship with Gareth ever since England on 21, so um, there's nothing you can do to change the decision. So I, I, I tried to take it and in the best way possible and... You know, I think in that phone call, that's 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 what I I tried to do, and and um, you know, at the end of the day, it was the right decision. They had a great tournament. Do you, do you think it was the right decision? Uh, you can't do for me, not me person, my decision about for England, me. Also oh, you. I see. Um, no, I can't say, but nah. I completely respected his decision, and and um, I know for sure it wouldn't have been an easy decision for him, given like everything that we'd been through before. But Gareth's always been really great in those moments because he's he he really he really talks to you and really 
you know is very open very open with you so that that makes things easier and uh, no for me it was just about I just straight away I just sort of reset and you know I thought I'm gonna you know enjoy my summer holidays and and I just looked straight you know I was I was actually with I was with Harry at the time in Portugal and um, you know he just said to me you know you've got a whole pre-season and, and take advantage of it and uh, be in the best possible shape you know to for the new season and, and uh, that's really what I tried to do you know is um, but I did you allow it. yourself any time to like I use the term grieve lightly but yeah. it must have felt like a grieving process did you give yourself any time just to do that yeah, of course. I was ups I was upset for a while, you know. I was I was I had I had like my I was with my best friends at the time and I was with my mum and dad like a couple of days later as well. So like <clears throat> I spent some time with them. I was with Jan Jan Vertonga and an hour after I found out I was I was having I was having dinner at Jan's in uh he obviously he's in Lisbon now, so you know, I spoke to him for a while. So I just spoke to like the people close to me and, and um you know, you just gotta move on it is it's it's gone and um just got to try and uh get through it the best way you know how and could you understand it like could you square it off in your own head the reasons for not making the squad or not no i can't understand it because but that's normal because it's yeah. me i think that's normal because it's me i'm never gonna bet against myself or, or it's difficult if it's you you know to ever understand it but um I understood his reasons, and uh, you know, and I said, as I said, like I respected his decision, and you know, I, I did, look, I did take a lot of positive. I hadn't had a preseason, for example, for I can't remember the last time I had a, a full preseason, you know. So that was great for me to have a full preseason and really prepare myself for the start of the season. And I really feel like I took that into into this season, you know, and and felt really good going into it, and felt like I had a base level of fitness that I hadn't had for a long time so um there was all all of those good things to to come out of it for me um which which yeah which was great and did you watch any of the england matches yeah yeah i watched um i watched denmark germany obviously the final and i watched uh the one in rome and by yeah. then did you put it all to bed because i think it's hard getting that news but then seeing the team make the final is kind of, I don't know, yeah, is that was even inc- harder than you're just thinking, oh, <laughs> yeah. come on, of all no. the times to... Obviously, you're disappointed. You can't help but be disappointed that, you know, such an amazing thing is happening and you're not there. But yeah, obviously, I was, you know, I was so happy for them and I've had so many people in that team, you know, Stonesy, Harry, Carl Walker, Jordan Pickford, you know, like I've been with them since under 21 so um or even earlier you know in some cases so you know for them you know to to for them to have the opportunity and to to win it and play in a fi- play in the final and what it must have felt like here in England you know was amazing it's also a reminder right that and this extends to every facet of our lives what is hard for us isn't necessarily bad for us like that was hard and horrible mm. But in the long run, it might not be bad for you. It might reignite the fire if, yeah. if they're... Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, 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 of course. You have to take... You know, I'm a firm believer in everything happens for a reason. So you have to try and just react in the best possible way. Like, there's there's no benefit for me whatsoever to sulk about it or, you know, blame other people or, you know, be angry with, with, uh, with Gareth or... There's just no benefit in it whatsoever for me in that, you know. So I'm not going to waste any time doing anything that was is going to put in jeopardy like me going yeah. forward yeah but it's, it comes back to something we talk often on this podcast which is like things happen that are not your fault that's a really good example 
but how you deal with it is your responsibility. And yeah. if you'd have sulked and got frustrated, well, that's not going to impact Gareth or no. the England team or anybody else. There's only yeah, one yeah. person that's going to affect. Yeah, yeah. And it's you. And I think it can be a, it's a hard mindset sometimes for people to understand that you can still choose happiness. Like you can still choose positivity yeah. in the face of unhappiness and negativity. Yeah, of course. Um, I think it's also about, as I get older, it's, it's more and more clear to me. But also like you distinguishing me as a footballer and me as a person, you know, and having a clear dis line between those two people. And when you're younger, how good you are at football, you feel like that's how good you are as a person. <laughs> and that's how, that's how good or bad you are, depending on how you played on the weekend or how you played, uh, how people perceive you as a footballer and distinguishing those two things. And, and, you know, this is, this is who I am yeah. as a person, regardless of football determines a lot how I am as a person, my experiences within it. But you can't roll with the ups and downs of football on a personal level. You need to, you need to know who you are as a person and, and um, there'll be up and downs in football, but you have a base to work off of, which is who I am, you know? Which is something that you said you've developed as you've got older. So what was yeah. it that, that, that made you realise that you had to uncouple those two? I think it's just maturity, you know. As you get older, you start to understand things. See, understand but I disagree, because I think age can give you experiences, but reflection gives you wisdom. Mm. So, it's, so getting older, a lot of people would still make those same mistakes. Yeah. Well, yeah, the people, you know, when I spoke about Yanamusa at the beginning, like, you know that that helped me. You know that helps me make those things. So I, I, I'm sure it's what you're around and who you're around. And and um, I live with both my brothers, and they keep me very. Right. But you're <laughs> obviously a thinker as well, though. Do you know what I mean? You obviously explore. You understand the power of exploration in every yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm. Um, I'm obsessive with uh, like trying new things and and some things stick and some things don't and I'm constantly <laughs> constantly experimenting with things and trying to get better in that way and thinking about and thinking about what I do and the way I act um, more and more as I get old, again as I get older and there are younger players around me like I think more and more about the way I want to be influencing them but yeah it, it for me it did just I was I was very up and down emotionally and. Uh, as uh, when I was young and it was very much based on how I played you know and and to this day it still affects me a lot because I'm one I am one of those people that thinks a lot about things you know so if uh, if I play badly I'll be thinking about it for a long time but that doesn't actually help me to find consistency in my performance because I need to be able to move on from it and move on to the next game so can we talk then about the public perception of footballers yeah how much does it frustrate you and, and maybe other players as well that the public perception of Eric Dyer is entirely dependent upon how you play the game. Well, I think in some cases it's, it's normal, you know, because that's what they see. That's that's they're not interested in in uh, what I do, what I do outside of those yeah. those ninety minutes. You know, that's that's really what you're judged on, and and I'm okay with that, really, you know, because that's that's what it's about. You know, that's what I judge myself on from a professional standpoint as well. Being judged on on the way I play football, I have I really don't have a problem with too much. Um, I have a lot more of a bigger problem with the way football is perceived outside of that. And you know, how do you mean? It just just in general, the way footballers are perceived in 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 so many ways. What are the cliches about footballers that you hate? I mean, Hector Bellerin came on here, and oh, okay. and he spoke to us about the fact that 
we put footballers in a box. So if you come on here and say, I play Fortnite for 15 hours a day, people go, cool, you're a footballer, of course yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. If you say, oh, I went to Milan to go to a fashion show, people go, why are you doing that? You're not yeah. concentrating on your football. Yeah, it's like exactly. This well, I had that like with Spotless, my app, so um, I get that a lot. It's like... Uh, does it does it take away your focus from football, et cetera, et cetera, you know? First of all, I would n nothing would ever, I would never let anything ever, like, affect my focus on football. And secondly, that's what I choose to do in my time. Whereas, as you said, if someone is playing Fortnite for, you know, eight hours after training, they haven't got, no one's, no one's got a problem with that because that's a footballer. I'm pretty sure that's a lot worse for you <laughs> than than me, you know, in my afternoons choosing to to do that or my days off choosing to do, you know, something like that. But there's still like such such a problem with that in football where there are so many footballers that I've been around and I am around all the time in, in the dressing room that I've played with who are so interesting in so many ways and intelligent, doing different things. Um, but scared to and they don't have to it's up to them some people prefer to be private but i feel like there is a lot of fear about being public in in any other way because of the perception that might the reaction that there might might exist which i think is a is is, is a big problem and it's, it's getting better i think but yeah it's, it's that thing where people judging footballers and and I, I have a real problem with it with like footballers in the press for doing something stupid as well you know because I'm 27, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm seen as as like getting getting to like you know I'm mature in a football world at 27, you know, and a 22 year old boy does something stupid, and uh, he can do one stupid thing and and it will snowball. That image of him from that moment will snowball, and he's 22. <laughs> yeah, do you think we expect too much of them? On a, on a human level, yeah, 100%, 100%. And that's not to mean that uh, it's right what they've done or that, you know, if he did it again, I'd be angry. You know, if he did it a second time, I'd be like, well, you're an idiot. <laughs> but I, I, have friend, I have friends, you know, my age, and it's completely normal at that age for people to be making mistakes and to be doing stupid things at that age when you're in, you know, you're thrown into this environment is extremely difficult to handle in many ways, like the, the fame, the money, the, the pressure, the demand on you, you know, at that age. It, it's, it's a privilege, you know, we're, we're extremely lucky and people love to go down that road, like, oh, you should be happy, you're, you're playing football, you're da -da -da, whatever. Um, but that's not the way he's seeing it, <laughs> you know. I know players that are perceived a certain way and then you're with them and or I don't know them and then I meet them and I'm like, oh, even yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, you know. How, how would you like people to perceive footballers? Like what, I'm sure you all talk about it. What would you just, what is the thing that footballers want from, from the public? Just, you know, it, like everything, just a little bit more understanding, I think, for certain situations. When you see ex-footballers talking about it, that's even more of a problem. Because it's like, well, you've been there. <laughs> you've been there, so you should have a better understanding than anyone. So yeah, it's just a bit more understanding in those moments. I'm not defending at all all there are there are behaviours and things that have happened that that I'm not yeah. defending. No, it and, makes and, perfect sense what you're saying. And I know also and repeat customers I'm not defending Correct. either. But, but it, also you sit here and you say these things, then you start thinking, Oh I don't want people to 
yeah, yeah. to interpret this as I'm defending footballers that behave badly. Yeah, no. I know, and that's the problem, yeah. isn't it? Like, it's almost like people are desperate to m misunderstand what yeah. some footballers say because yeah, it suits yeah. the narrative of footballers are lazy, footballers don't care, yeah. you know. And that's not the case. Not at all. I'm, j I'm just a huge defender of football in, <laughs> in general because... I'm in that dressing room, you know, and I see them, you know, and like, and I'm, you know, I'm looking at them and I'm, I, I don't want to say names, but like, you know, you know, I'm looking and thinking like, you, you, you're such, <laughs> you're such a good kid, you're such a, you know, um, professional, whatever, whatever, and that's the perception because of you did something stupid when you were... The problem is you can deal with it. The sad thing is the young players where it actually damages them because they can't deal with it. Yeah, massively. More and more with, um, you know, social media is a huge, huge pro problem uh, in many, many ways. You know, like I see it, I'm on the bus after a game and I see like, you know, you can see players like, you know, and they're, they're, they're scrolling through their What are they feeds. looking for, do you think? I don't know. You know, you're looking for instant gratification or... If you play badly, I don't know why you'd want to look at it, but people do anyway. You go there? Do you do it? No, I'm uh, I'm completely off. Like I have accounts, I have an Instagram, but I don't have Instagram on my phone. Yeah, and, and uh, that's something I've done now for. Uh, Did it affect you? Uh, not so much from a football point of view, because I would I would obviously you can't help but see stuff so obviously and if you see stuff it's going to affect you there's people that say it doesn't i just don't believe them um but just i was just i i, I you know i'd just be addicted i'd just be constantly on it and constantly looking at what other people are doing and and um so i just i would delete it and then reopen it and delete it and then i deleted there. it like this season a while ago or quite a while ago right at the beginning and I really said to myself, like, this time, because I am just a happier person when I'm off it, so, See, yeah. but there's a theme, like, a, a couple of times in this conversation, Eric, you've spoken about focus, about when you first went to the academy in Lisbon, and there was that real, like, singular focus, and yeah. then you talked about lockdown gave you the ability to focus and simplify things again. Yeah. So that seems to me that that's when you're at your very best. Yeah. And yet you've spoken about from... When you come into this world of being a Premier League footballer, the fame, the hype, the noise that surrounds you. So what's been the best technique you've learned that allows you to maintain that focus? So when I do get interested in these things, you know, they can sort of take over my life. So it's about contro about controlling that and then keeping things simple keeps my keeps keeps me focused. And then routine. Like I really I really need like routine in, in, in my life, like if if I start to like lose that, then I just feel out of control. So um, so routine really really helps me and um, keeps me on the straight and narrow. <laughs> and for any young people listening to this, and there are many who would dream of having a career like yours, the power of communication, whether that is having a group of people around you that you really trust. Um, yeah. You know, we've had quite a few footballers on here. Tyrone Mings is a good example. Who he speaks to a psychologist before every game. Yeah. Having that outlet. Who who do you go to? I go to my mum and dad for most things. Whenever I'm going to make like a, a serious decision, my mum's the last person I speak to to get her okay, really, you know. And like it's it's good. My brothers, as I said, I live live with them and very very close to them, and you know we we talk a lot. And then my friends, yeah, 
my, my close friends, close friends within the club, close friends out, out, outside the club. Yeah, so just within that group of people, depending on what it's about, uh, I'll, I'll speak to people within that. And it is the, mo the most important thing to to have open communication. And it's something I've struggled with in the past, you know, because I feel like I keep it all in, you know. So, um, tr yeah, having open lines of communication where you can just let free of everything is is important. But I think also just communicating in the right way as well. What do you mean by that, in the right way? It's everything about how the message is given, you know. So if you give the message in the right way, that the other person can take it in 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 the right way but so i think a lot of it is about how you portray whatever it is you want to put across to someone well in my case the way in which people will speak to me how that affects me or if i'm speaking to someone about i want to put across my thoughts on something the way i do that because i'm not i'm not very calm <laughs> in those situations so try to try to keep uh, calm and communicate in the right way yeah it's been such an interesting hour and a bit to sit and talk about your route and your journey yeah, yeah. and the mindsets. So, like, I look back on your whole career, having followed it, you know, in my job and, and as yeah. a football fan as well. And you know the time you hopped into the crowd after that defeat to Norwich? <laughs> yeah. My team, by the way. Oh, yeah, it was against Norwich. That feels to me almost like the only time that you've really kind of lost control. Do you know what I mean? The rest of the time, yeah. yours has been a story of control. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, in that, in that situation, I'm not confrontational at all and I'm very calm in general. But when something gets me, it really gets me, you know, and there are moments for, for everyone. What was it about that that got you? Oh, uh, my family was involved. So, um, yeah, I've never, ever spoken about that situation just because I don't even know if I get in trouble. I don't know if I would get in trouble or not for saying like, like there's a whole situation around it. What I've always said is that I've never, ever once had a person come up to me in the street and call me names, like insult me or gesture towards me in any way, you know. The only situations where it happens is in a football stadium or... In a car. Yeah, someone driving <laughs> yeah. past in a car, you know. And, and it really, really gets to me because you wouldn't do that to me in no front of me and and you know it's like a, it's kind of like a zoo mentality you know where like i'm definitely not comparing myself to a lion but <laughs> you know you're in the zoo and you're standing in front of a lion and but there's that there's and in a, in a stadium it feels like there's for some reason there's a there's a there's yeah. an imaginary cage where people suddenly feel that they can treat you in a certain way and i've got absolutely no problem with with um people talk criticizing me in my football or getting emotional in the moment and and you know calling me a name or whatever like i love i love that i love all about that football like the next game we played burnley away and they were singing this song <laughs> they were singing like eric die your brother's a and and um i loved that i thought it was hilarious my you know my mum and dad were at the game and they thought it was funny. I remember going home and I was singing it to my brother all the time because it was just it was just it was just a funny thing and I enjoy all that kind of thing, but I just can't understand like in like in that situation, you know, there was someone just continuously I was looking it was where the family sits, so I was looking for my family and there was someone just continuously just nonstop like and I and I continued looking, I was like, like, what is going and then that's what that's when it happened because my brother was literally one row above 
this right. this 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 guy in question then obviously he wasn't my brother wasn't very happy about it um and that's how the whole whole situation happened but the part i don't really want to talk about because i don't know if i get in trouble or not is the whole fa hearing you know but i have some very strong right. strong opinions on the way that it was managed and the way it was handled and and uh my my punishment uh, if you can compare it to others uh, for other things and um i can't say sorry for it and i can't i'll do it again tomorrow because my brother was there and and uh my brother wasn't in any kind of danger you know but he was there i could be in a football stadium or i could be in the street or i could be anywhere and my brother could do something and he could be in the wrong <laughs> but i'd still go you know like because that. you know i was brought up on that and and my parents um i'm sure my mum was proud of me for it you know and but well, yeah i was going to ask what did your parents say to you after that no i remember i remember like we were in the car on the way home and it obviously afterwards it was like a crazy thing and and my mom just rang she was really worried that we were not okay so she just was ringing to make sure we were okay and that and that was it you know and then obviously it just wasn't nice from from like my brother because he's not someone <laughs> that wants any kind of uh interest in him whatsoever so in that sense it wasn't nice for him more than me because i'm i'm kind of used to it yeah you know it comes back to the same conversation about Eric Dyer the person and Eric Dyer the footballer. The reason why when you walk out of here in 10 minutes time, no one will yell at you in the street is because you're Eric Dyer the person. Yeah. The minute you put the kit on and walk out at a football pitch, you're fair game in the eyes of those fans or some of those fans yeah. because you're Eric Dyer the footballer. And I think mm. this whole conversation is a reminder for all football fans, right, to understand that they might be wearing a kit, they might be representing a club. Yeah, yeah. But they're a human being yeah. with emotions and stories yeah. and quite often struggles and turmoil yeah, that nobody yeah. ever sees. Yeah. And I think until the general public see footballers as human beings, I think mm. there'll always be this problem. Mm. And the reality is you reacted like a human being, yeah. not like a footballer. Yeah. Everyone has their breaking point and yeah. it's hard to be critical of someone acting in that way yeah well that's i guess that's my point on the footballers is that the perception the like lots of perceptions in some way and you talk about like the the car you you mentioned before the cars the tattoo etc etc is you got to remember that if these anyone that is playing in the premier league or in la liga or the german football is the most played sport in the world so there are tons and tons and tons of of kids trying to become footballers you know and like you know i'm at one academy where there's hundreds of kids trying to do it and there's you know there's 20 premier league clubs where there's hundreds of kids trying to do it and these guys so like the guys in the in every one of these dressing these are the ones that i guarantee you sacrifice the most work the hardest you know gave the most were you know in all of those ways those these were the guys that did that you know because in my academy there were loads that were better than me you know amazing footballers whatever and and they didn't make it so these guys were the guys that gave <laughs> you know worked the hardest did everything to to make it happen you know and and that's important to remember because you know then you look at the cars and you look at the thing yeah but they were the ones that were from 
from eight, eight, eight years old all the way through were the most disciplined, the most hardworking, the most committed. Um, and that's important to remember, yeah. doesn't fit the narrative. That's the problem. But yeah. You're totally right. It is absolutely important to remember. Yeah. And I think, you know, you might have discussed a couple of things with us that you maybe didn't plan on or want to talk about. But yeah. actually, I think having that kind of really honest conversation about how footballers feel about the public perception actually is about the only thing that will help to change public perception. Yeah. You can't expect 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds to, to, to do that. Mm. And actually, they're the ones that, they're the ones that get pelted the most, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, um, listen, thanks for coming on and, no, thank um, you. and thank being you. honest um, about your thoughts. We always finish with our quick-fire questions. Oh, okay, cool. So, um, we're going to start with three non-negotiable behaviours, just three things that you and the people around you have to buy into. Making my bed, lateness, I'm, I'm never late, I hate lateness. I was late today, actually. Uh, <laughs> come on, man. Unbelievable. <laughs> but... <laughs> in, in general, uh, yeah, I hate lateness. Yeah. Um, we forgive you. <laughs> lateness, uh, respect. Yeah. What advice would you give to a teenage Eric just starting out? I'd give a piece of advice that my dad gave me, and, and so I did have it, but it, uh, it's always been the thing that stuck with me, which is um, take care of football and everything else will take care of itself. Obviously, we're going to have to promote another podcast now, which we shouldn't really do. But I know you love Joe Rogan's podcast. Lots of people yeah. do. Most listen to podcasts in the world. We <laughs> listen all the time. If you could recommend one episode of that podcast to people, Ooh, which wow. one would you choose? Now, that is a tough question. <laughs> um, I really, really enjoyed uh, Guy Ritchie. Really? On Joe Rogan, yeah. And he has this interesting part where he talks about wearing the suit versus the suit wearing you. Yeah, and it's like, you can get it on YouTube. There's like a 30-minute clip of it. I've watched it a lot well, of times. You've deep on this. <laughs> I've watched it a lot of times. Wow. And, uh, what did that resonate with you? For me, it's about being your own man, you know, owning your decisions, not letting, yeah, not letting the suit wear you, you know, not letting, not letting anything else. I think you've nailed that. I tried. I didn't, I didn't do Guy any justice, but it's a great <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. If you could go back to one moment in your life, where would you go to and why? I'm going deep. <laughs> I'd probably go to the Lucas Moura in Ajax when we when we won that semi-final. I was on the bench, I didn't play, and it was the most amazing thing I've ever had on a foot pitch was that moment. I mean, like it was just incredible. <laughs> yeah, so that, that moment was, yeah, amazing. Love it. Um, and the final question, you know, taking into account all the things you've been through, the story, the resilience, the upbringing. If you could leave the listeners of this podcast with one message from you, what would be your kind of one message for them when it comes to living a, a high-performance life? What, what would you like to say to them? To be the hardest-working person in the room, you know, always. To be the hardest-working person and to do all the basics right, you know, all of the things that you can control, control them, you know. And I always say it to, like, young footballers, the thing, be on time, you know, be respectful, eat right, do the, these things, because these are all things that you can control and, and they're all points. <laughs> they're free points that is yeah. completely up to you. So control the controllables and be the hardest working person in the room, I think. Top man. Thank you for your time. No, thank you for having me. Thanks very much. That was brilliant, thank you. I enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Damien. Jake. We started that conversation 
talking about bravery, right? And I think we ended it with a real sense that for Eric to come on and talk in the way he did is brave. But I, like I said to him, until footballers talk in that way, really honestly, then nothing will change. And for him to sit there and say, you know, when he confronted that fan, oh, I would do it again, yeah. rather than the, you know, the PRs talk about, oh, I regret it, I wish I hadn't done it. It totally changes the narrative. And I just hope that people are able to see that that was a human being talking who was hurting and frustrated and angry. And if we want a better connection to the people that play our national sport, we have to not be judgmental with conversations like that, right? Yeah, I think go back to the definition of bravery, Jake. It's, it's speaking your heart, being honest, being authentic. And I think whether that's him going to that academy at Sporting Lisbon at 13 and moving away from his family, going to Everton, confronting that guy in the stands. Bravery is about speaking his heart and being authentic to who he is. And I think it's up to us as recipients of that to be open to that and not seek to have an opinion, but seek to empathise and understand. And how do we start to change the narrative then about footballers? Because you could tell when he was talking about the criticism, especially that young players get, you know, he's not making excuses for players behaving badly. But what he's basically saying is, don't judge a 20, 21-year-old really harshly because everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the statistic was what I think the author Michael Calvin had spoken about, the 0.012% of young people that go through an academy system will play in the Premier League. And he's trying to get us to see that these guys that we might easily deride as being lazy or arrogant or selfish have had to made an awful lot of sacrifices to get to that position but that's the work in the shadows that's the boring stuff that we don't see and I think what Eric's doing is shining a light on those shadows and getting us to see the person and not the professional and it's also important for us to remember that we look at footballers and go what a great life but also the reality is what a challenging life because one year you're scoring a penalty in a major tournament for your country. A couple of years later, you're not even in the squad. You're watching from home as they make the final. Like, that, is, yeah. that is serious pain for someone to deal with. And, I, and credit to him for talking about it. But it's a reminder that without resilience, I don't think you can be successful. Exactly. And I think resilience and married that to, to having a really clear idea of your own values as a person. So when he said that he's learned to uncouple the footballer from the person he is. So just because his worth as a footballer might not be as high two years after Gareth Southgate selected him for a World Cup doesn't mean that his worth as a person isn't still exactly the same. And it's a powerful place to be and an important place to be mentally, I think, that. For all of us, whether we're elite athletes like Eric or whether we're a couple of dads like me and you doing this, it's really important. Brilliant. Thanks again, mate. Cheers, mate. And of course, thanks to Eric as well for coming on and being so honest. It's easy not to do that when you're a professional athlete. So thanks a lot, Eric, from all of us at the podcast. Okay, now um, I'm sure you know on this podcast, we have a lot of teachers. We have um, a lot of parents. We have a lot of business leaders, all kinds of people from all walks of life um, listen. And a lot of them get in touch to tell us how the podcast has impacted them. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our first sheep shearer. And we've not had an email before from someone that has followed their passion and their dreams all the way to New Zealand as well. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to High Performance Lloyd Reese. Hi, Lloyd. Hi, Jake. Hi, Damien. So, Lloyd, you're out in New Zealand um, and you're from Wales originally. I know you're currently quarantining, but you're out there for your 10th season. Is that right? Of, of sheep shearing? 
That's correct. Yeah. So when I was um, when I was eighteen, I I decided I started shearing just before that at, in in Wales, and then decided that if I wanted to improve, I needed to do more of it. So so New Zealand was the the location. So so when I was eighteen, I I started travelling over here. And what was the reaction of Welsh boy going over to New Zealand to get better at sheep shearing when you first went out there then, Lloyd? It's a niche industry, but but for us, it's sort of well known that, that there's a lot of sheep in New Zealand. And and uh, I've just followed in the footsteps of a, of a lot of other Welsh guys before me and, and people from the UK, from France that have, you know, that have travelled to New Zealand just to, to, well, to make money and to and to better ourselves, really. What I really like about this conversation, right, is that when you talk about sport or business or being an entrepreneur, everyone goes, yeah, I can see how that's high performance. This is a really good reminder, though, that any walk of life, any passion that you choose, you can operate at a high performance level. And, you know, I think I don't want to speak for you, Lloyd, but I kind of get the impression the fact you listen to this podcast and you reached out is that you see sheep shearing in a similar way to how... I don't know, Gareth Southgate, who's been on the podcast, sees, sees football management. It's something to focus on with an elite mindset. Absolutely right, Jake. Yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of technicals to it, to, you know, to, to your, we call it a pattern, um, how you actually move around the sheep and control the sheep, you know, to make it, make it as quick and as painless as possible for everyone, you know, yourself and the, and the animal and keep it stress-free for the animal too, you know, so... The, the smoother and the quicker you can you can do it, the better. So I see the the high performance side of it as you know better in my technique. I just want to be the you know in my field the best sheep shearer that I can be and the best in the world, hopefully. So one of the phrases that we often use on the podcast slide is around world class basics. It's a phrase that Sarian McGeekin taught us. What would you say are the world class basics then of being a elite sheep shearer? Time management, that is absolutely key. You know, like we, we start cheering at five in the morning and we finish at five in, in the in the evening and, and you know, breaks in between, obviously. But, uh, you know, you, you have to be on time. You have to be polite. You have to, you know, you're, you're working as part of a team. So you have to communicate well with, with everyone that's around you. The basics are, are just, you know, control, discipline, I know you've mentioned about there's a competition for this. What so what does that involve? So what I'm aiming to do is a is a British record and basically that involves it's the number of lambs shorn in a 9-hour shearing day 5 to 5 and and they have to be obviously shorn to a high standard of quality, you know, very very neatly shorn as well. And what's the British record at the moment? The British record is currently 872 lambs in nine hours. Come on, Lloyd, do it for high performance. Um, <laughs> Lloyd, I love this conversation because I, I just think that it's really important people realise that it doesn't matter your walk of life, your profession, your career, your passion. Doing it to the very best of your ability is all we're about here on the High Performance Podcast. And um, and I want, I want you to be a good reminder for people that we can't just fit ourselves into a box where... If we're not in a certain field, we're not high performance. I love that you have that growth mindset. It's brilliant, man. Yeah, absolutely. And and from from listening, I so it would have been May, and my my mate recommended you guys to me and the podcast to me, and and I was off to um, to start the the shearing season back in the UK. Um, I was traveling, and I 
I listened to it and from there basically it just inspired me to to I knew I wanted to do this record but it was the it was the almost the the kick in the backside to the to get the ball rolling and to start it listen mate I I I love the fact that we're impacting people from all different walks of life and also from all different parts of the world as well. Um, you know, it's been difficult over here recently with COVID and things, and I hope that you look after yourself the other side of the world in New Zealand, and um, and I hope uh, I hope we continue to inspire you, and I really, you know, wish you all the very best with that record. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, Damien, um, look, I really want people to get as much as possible out of the High Performance Podcast for 2022. So I thought we'd just start with a few quick questions that have come in over the Christmas holidays. Um, there's one here that's come in from Manny saying, Hi guys, um, huge fan of your work. I've just listened to your roundup of the previous series. If you haven't heard it yet, it was um, just released towards the back end of 2021. They said, um, I found a bit about dreaming really interesting. I found it difficult to connect and engage as I'm struggling to identify what my dream is. Any episodes or advice you would give regarding finding your passion or your dream? Sometimes I feel like I'm just existing in life rather than making the impact I know I'm capable of. And it's interesting this one, Damien, because this is one of the most common messages that we get. And we exist in a world now where we're constantly told, oh, if it's not your passion, um, then you're not really living your life. If it isn't your dream, then you're, then you're not really you know, fulfilling your potential. So what do we do for all these people who are just like Manny and are thinking, well, I don't know what my dream, my passion, my purpose is, so I feel like I'm stuck in neutral? It's a brilliant question and I can empathise with it, as I'm sure lots of people can, Jake. I think when we wrote about this in uh, in the book that came out uh, at the end of last year, they, th- so this was a question that we reflected on a lot and what we encourage people to do is reflect on three areas. First of all, work out what you're really good at. So where do your talents lie? Reese Wabara, very early on in Series 2, spoke to us about don't do something because you think it's fashionable. Do it because you're good at it. Secondly, do something that you really love. And then the third thing is look at what pays you as well because we all have sort of demands on our time. So I'd encourage Manny and anyone else listening to it to first of all think what am I good at? Then what do I love doing? And then finally, what drives what Jim Collins, the management writer, describes as your economic engine. And then if you can find things that hit the sweet spot that tap into all three of those areas, I think that's where we're getting signs that maybe that's where our daydreams need to be focused and our efforts need to be applied towards. I think that's really good advice. And look, I'm not Manny and anyone else listening to this. I'm not just saying this because I want you to go and buy our book and I'm trying to sell you our book. But we really thought, as Damien said, long and hard in our high performance book about how we can help people to understand the importance of the process rather than the destination, how we can help you all just realize that every single day there are great things to be excited and happy about. Um, If you want to get the book, it's called High Performance Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best. And I think the only thing I'd add to what Damien said, Manny, is that I think that often we look at it, we look at something that we're passionate about or that we love and we say, well, that can't be my passion because it's not going to pay the bills. So, you know, therefore it's useless to me. I think that we live in a world now where it's easier to chase our passion than ever before. Um, Comeback CK has also sent us a message on Instagram and I see a lot of your messages. Comeback CK, you're a really good supporter of ours. So thank you. And the message says, in both of your careers, did you ever experience imposter syndrome? rising in a highly competitive environment and if so how did you manage the challenge did we ever experience it 
every day, even now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let exactly. me tell a quick story, Damien, that we've had a message from, how should we describe this, a group of elite individuals yes, who want us to go and meet with them and talk about the podcast and things. And these are people operating at the very cutting edge of the world in which they're in. And I said to you, there's no way I can stand up in front of them and talk because they're going to look at me and go, what the hell do you know? Look look at how they sort of engage on a daily basis with genuine elite level stuff. I don't think that, certainly for me anyway, imposter syndrome will ever leave. And let me just tell you all at home as well a quick story that when I wanted to do this podcast, part of the reason that I didn't do it was because of imposter syndrome. Because I thought, well, like, there's no way I can create a podcast. And even one person will think, yeah, that guy's credible. I'll listen to him. And that's why I made the best decision ever, which was to ask Damien to be involved in this. Because I met Damien at Norwich City. And I thought, wow, this guy knows so much. He talks brilliantly. And as has been proven with the amazing questions and the great stuff he's brought to the podcast. But the very reason you're involved, Damien, is is really because of imposter syndrome, isn't it? Because I didn't sit here thinking, yes, I'm the man to host this podcast. I sat here thinking, wow, I need someone who's not an imposter to come on the journey with me. <laughs> well, that's really kind and really generous, Jake, and I am grateful. Um, but I think we all have imposter syndrome at times. And I don't think the way we frame it has to be a bad thing because I think it keeps our feet on the ground. It makes sure that we don't get complacent. I like that example you say, though, about the story. My wife, I'll tell you an example that when I wrote my first book and if people were kind enough and say, oh, I've read your book, I used to... Uh, I used to make a disparaging comment, like, oh, you're the one, you're the only one that's read it. That, uh, and my wife stopped me once and said to me, just say thank you. Just say thank you when you do it, because it, then you don't need to then reinforce a story that you don't feel worthy or you don't feel that your book is any good. Just acknowledge it, thank you, and then move on. It's more elegant rather than writing that different script in your head. So... Maybe that's a nice way for people to think about it as well, that just when you have imposter syndrome, thank your brain for making you aware of it and then write a different story. By the way, I've never met a high achiever that doesn't have imposter syndrome. So if you're listening to this and you have it, you're in good company. So that's it then, Damien. Here we go. 2022, first episode yeah. down. Eric Dyer, what a fascinating and interesting guy. Um, have you got any sort of words of wisdom you'd like to leave people with for the year ahead? Uh, yeah, I think um, as we go into this year, um, I like telling people that when we talk about being resilient for life's challenges, you don't need to be resilient in the face of kindness and decency and empathy. So surround yourself with people that uh, understand your journey and the supporters. And that way, resilience isn't necessarily the be all and end all. It's lovely that, Damien. Uh, it's the, like that great phrase, either work out how to be kind or figure out how to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it then. Here we go, 2022. Um, listen, if you are really looking to attack a different mindset or um, a different perspective, or if there's people in your life that you think need to really open their eyes in 2022, the High Performance Book, Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best, is available now. It's full of conversations from the podcast. It's also full of loads of research and science. As well as that, it's all about you as well. We have things in there called Pit Stops, where we challenge you to do everything you can to use the lessons in the book to improve your own life. I believe it's a book that will transform your life in 2022. So if you're fancying a new you for the new year, um, check it out. And if you go to the highperformancepodcast.com, you can also find details of our live tour. We are coming to you in 2022. 
too. We can't wait to meet you all. Damien, thanks so much, man. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well, Jake. And thanks again for having us along. Well, don't go anywhere because we've got some amazing episodes coming in the next few weeks. So we look forward to sharing those with you. And I just want to finish by saying thanks. Thanks for making High Performance the number one podcast in the UK. Thanks for keeping our book at the top of the charts as well. Um, None of this will be happening if it wasn't for your support. So please remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be your own biggest cheerleader and make world-class basics your calling card. See you next time. Huge thanks to the whole team behind the scenes here at High Performance and to everyone at Rethink Audio as well. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.